Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Taiwan on Air, 空中直播台湾 Hello, everyone. This is Tihan Zhang Tihan, one of the hosts of our Taiwan on Air podcast series, sponsored by Spotlight Taiwan Project from the Ministry of Culture, as well as the European Association of Taiwan Studies. And today, we are here for a book chat. Our special guest today is a rising star of Taiwanese sci-fi writer Miss Ling Xinhui. Born in 1990s, Xinhui happens to grow up in the transition of the new millennium. And like many of her peers, her experiences to the world are inevitably tied with the fast-changing technologies, digitizations, and the virtual world. This aspect has, I believe, highly influenced her ideas and creativity. Today, she's not only a sci-fi writer and a literary critic from Taipei, but also a successful PhD candidate in the National Zhengzhi University under the supervision of Mr. Ji Dawei, another renowned Taiwan queer sci-fi writer. In 2020, Xinhui published her short story collection *Human Glitches*, which investigates the blurring boundaries between humans and machines, the surreal moments that occurred in our mundane life, and the loneliness that consumes us in the age of the technology and hyperreality. As a debut novelist, she was awarded the 2020 Taiwan Literature Award for Books (Taiwan Literature Jinchujiang). She frequently publishes reviews and essays on major media. Intersecting in literature with current events and cultural activities, her current research focuses on the relationship between literary texts and the ecological and technological humanities. From what I know, Xinhui is also now in Los Angeles as a visiting scholar at UCLA for her doctoral research. Welcome, Xinhui, to our podcast. 欢迎欢迎 and thanks for agreeing to join us. Hi, hi, Dihan. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again, Xinhui, for agreeing to this podcast. I wanted to start our conversation first by addressing some of your literary, both your literary genre, that is the queer sci-fi genre or queer speculative fiction, and the enmeshed kind of topics you choose to incorporate in your books, human glitches, including topics like climate change, post-human, and post-gender cyborg, as well as a social physical disability. So, for my first questions, I have to admit your book *Human Glitches* has highly impressed me. Especially, one can tell that your ambition to like include all these different variety of different topics and presented them under the queer sci-fi and queer speculative genre. I'm hoping that I'm placing you in a literary category where you see that is fitting for your writing. But if you disagree, of course, please do share your thoughts with us later on. I also wanted to ask you. 
Would you say that being part of the new generations amongst Taiwanese writers, this is the genre that one must explore in uh, one's own writing? I was reading Chen Chou-fan's published paper in an academic journal the other day, and he's also a very well-known contemporary sci-fi writer from China. In his article, he said that he would consider writing literature in the age of the superreal, though could be a very challenging task once you still embrace this kind of challenge and especially embraces sci-fi writings. The reason he sees writing today is a challenging task because our world is now completely entangled with not just a virtual reality, but for him, entangled with a kind of hyper-reality. He thinks that we are now living in a hyper-reality where technology creates for us and with us, and we cannot possibly remove ourselves or separate our daily experiences from what technology offers. So we cannot see sci-fi as a future projections, but as a new type of realism. Would you say that your work also share the kind of similar idea or belief like Chen Chou-fan? Through your fictional writing, do you also intend to present your reader this kind of uh, sci-fi realism? Can you please share a little bit of your thoughts with us? Uh, thank you, Dihan. This is a very insightful question to bring in our conversation. I think I should start with the saying you read from Chen Chou-fan. It resonates with me very much. And yes, I totally agree with him. I think sci-fi is no longer a distant future, but our everyday life. And I just say a few examples. Now I live in an apartment in Los Angeles, and I don't have housemates. So every day I come to my place, at the very moment when I open the door and enter the room, I say something. Do you know what I say? Alexia? (laughs) Calling Amazon? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have no one to say, hi, I'm home, right? And I don't have pets. And when I'm by myself, I don't murmur to myself. But I still say something every time I enter the door. And yeah, you're right. I say, Alexa, turn on the light. So I think, wow, the only object in this empty room I talk to is a virtual assistant. I'm not saying that I'm lonely. I'm just saying that it's a sci-fi moment that wouldn't have come to real just five or ten years ago. In the same uh, scenario, but five years earlier, I wouldn't have to speak to a virtual assistant to illuminate my room. I just come to my room and uh, just stay silent. So from this on, so I imagine a scene five or ten years later. What would our life be like? To whom will we be talking to in our daily life? Will we talk with humans, pets, or a technological ghost? Who in the world do you think is most familiar with you? Your family member or your partner, your close friends? And actually, I'm always thinking that the one who understands me the most is probably my phone. It looks at me around 100 times a day on average because I use my face to unlock my phone. And even more than that, because I use my face to pay and download apps. So my phone remembers my face, my features and my habits and my preferences so well that it tells me what to do at a certain time or place. I spend three hours on average staring at my phone, and I think, do I stare at my parents or my friends so long a day? So in this sense, with whom am I more intimate? My phone or my friends and family? Just thinking all about this, I'm not criticizing a probable future where people spend most of the time talking with machines or artificial intelligence. I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm just speculating what it would be like based on the reality we are living now. 
crafting all these speculations into details for me is precisely the essence of my writing. So yes, as a writer and also as a researcher, my education taught me that we should always confront the reality, not to avoid it. And sci-fi is now the reality. I think it's a genre that our generation should dive in because it's already no longer a genre. It's our reality, our daily life. After the book is published, I got some feedback from readers that think my stories are both real and surreal. And I think, oh yes, that's our daily life. We live in a modern life under which there are so many surreal moments. For example, in Los Angeles, I see homeless people and delivery machines on the same sidewalks. For me, it's a typical dystopian scene or it's just a cyberpunk scene, which combines the most advanced technology and most inferior low life. So every time I walk on the street, I feel like I'm living in a dystopian fiction while at the same time I live in a real world. I think this huge contrast is because we live in a world like this, so I can write surreal stories with very realistic touch. Can I follow up just a little bit? Do you think that, in fact, the creativity comes also from this kind of dystopian world? Because from what you said, the hyper-reality, actually, you agree, is reality. But you also have a very negative sort of um, dystopian descriptions about it. In one way or another, is it any possible that in the future we will be able to create a world that is more positive but sci-fi-like? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think the technology is just a two-edged sword. It can bring convenient life and also it brings huge contrast between the rich and the poor. In terms of the optimistic side, I just immediately thought about how technology can help with people with disabilities. Because I just read an autobiography called Peter 2.0, which tells a story about Peter. He's a patient with a neuron disease. He is paralyzed. He relies on technology to help him to, for example, because he couldn't speak and he couldn't move, he relies on AI avatar to help him have that kind of human contact. Yeah, and to help him express himself because it's a regressive neuron disease. So before he paralyzed, he coded his language preferences and his facial expression into this AI avatar. So after he's completely paralyzed, the AI avatar can just be a second self of him. It's like a life extension, right? Yeah, right. So this is a possibility that technology can help us, and it's very optimistic. Interesting. Would you say that in the future you will also fall in love with your phone? <laughs> like what we see in the movie in her? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, maybe not fall in love, but I believe it would be a, a much more intimate relationship than we can imagine. This is very interesting, like the first question that we have like started the ball rolling. So another question I have is more about the wide range of topics that you intend to include in your book. I understand, of course, an author may want to um, have multiple themes or topics they want to present it to the readers. But usually what we see is author usually filter out one or two main themes and go into more details to elaborate. But it seems to me that you wanted to address so many of them. And many of these topics revolve around social, political issues we observe today in Taiwanese society in particular. For example, in the opening chapter, I don't know if it's an accurate translation, I translate it into a piece. You have entangled climate change issue, the decline of birth rate, 
fixated gender roles and the function in society and neoliberal point-based systems in computer data that monitors all our lives. Later on, in different chapters, you cover also fat-shaming culture, a type of uh, severe social withdrawal syndrome for male, sexual perversion, and also other different forms of physical or emotional dysfunction. Incorporating and elaborating on these sort of provocative issues, is there a fundamental anxiety about our society today that you wish to use your work to communicate with the readers? Yeah, I just thought of the translation you mentioned because this short story, Yiju, although it's not translated into English, it has already been translated and published in German with the translated title Technofrauen, which means technical or a technological wife, as I understood it from my little knowledge of German. I just want to start from the title because I think this title, the translate title, because it combines technology and woman in one word and it blurs the boundary between machines and humans, I think it mirrors our daily life and it is the main issue I want to address to readers. Yeah, because all these topics you see in my stories lie in the same question and that is just, I mentioned the boundary. I'm very into the boundary question. For me, it's a question of everything. For example, the, the modern life scenario I just mentioned that we live in the close relationships with machines. For me, it's a question about the boundary between humans and non-humans. So the question is like, if a non-human entity like my phone knows me better than my friends who are presumably humans, then which one is more like a human? Turning back to the topics you said you read in my book, it's all about boundaries. The boundary between normal and abnormal, between modern and absurd, and between reality and virtuality. And I want to explore how these boundaries are constructed socially and culturally. Yeah, so just take the short story Yiju or the technological wife you mentioned. It tells a story about a man and his virtual wife get married and and all he has to do is to conform strictly to the social norms inscribed into the system that generated the virtual wife. Otherwise, he will be deemed as a failure of the system and he will be exiled away from this system that both accommodates and oppresses him. So through this story, I'm pondering if we live our life in line with the scripts constructed by the dominant structure, are we humans? Or are we machines acting according to programs? And also, you mentioned the gender aspect of this story. And I must admit, I derived the idea of this story directly from queer theorist Judith Butler's theory on performativity, which describes how we are programmed to perform our gender identities under the matrix of heterosexuality. We as a qualified, so-called qualified men or women is valued by this matrix. So I converted this theoretical idea into a game system in which the main character lives every detail of his life, including how to dress up, how to speak, how to gesture, according to the instructions of the system to get as many points as possible as he can. So you can say he's just trying to appear normal in the societal system he lives in. But in this sense, I'm also looking into how the boundary between normal and abnormal is constructed. I'm not illustrating all these blurring boundaries, like this phenomena out of anxiety, as you mentioned. I'm more like inviting readers to think about these issues and discussing it with me. You can see, even I 
incorporate so many things into these stories. I try to depict them from an objective distance. By doing this, I'm conveying a message within this distance. I'm telling the readers, hey, this is the world I see we're living in. What do you think about it? So I'm leaving spaces for readers to extrapolate from what they read. So in fact, to answer the question that I have, it's not actually a fundamental anxiety that you want to show to the reader, but more like telling the reader, look at this. This is how we draw a line between people who are normal and people who are not normal. And then why do we draw that line at all? Yeah, it's more like depicting the fact, not my personal anxiety. Actually, as a researcher, I live in the reality. Yeah, I'm anxious about it. But at the same time, I think I should remain the the distance. So not to put into my judgment and not to press my judgment to my readers. I should remain the distance and leave for the readers to judge it. Right. So moving on to my next subject that I would like to uh, talk about your book's narrative construction, because this is something that I find very brilliantly constructed together as a collection work. One can easily identify, actually, there is a gender and narrative perspective that is being constructed, or we can say being deconstructed in one way or another. We can see that you have put in some thoughts in designing the structure to the reader especially for the first section, because the book itself is divided into three different parts. And the first part, we can see that we are coming in as a reader, assuming a position of a male third person, a he kind of perspective. Sure, this person might be a machine. (laughs) And part two is from a she perspective. And then a part three, it becomes brilliantly binded into like a first person, but we do not know where the boundary like between human machine cyborg line kind of perspective. So it can be an I or an AI. Can you tell us a little bit more about why this particular structure design? Also, what are the underlying meaning behind this genderized, degenderized or humanized and dehumanized narrative? Yeah, I think I can elaborate on the distance I mentioned to answer this question. As you have noticed, you didn't make it very explicit, is that every character in my stories doesn't have a name. In the first part of the book, yeah, every character in the story is simply a he, and the second part a she, the third part an I. So they don't have a name. By doing this, I'm sort of making an experiment to what extent individual traits can be erased. As I finish these stories without giving any character a name or recognizable personalities, I felt they are less like a human, but more like mannequins. They have no faces. They have no bodily attributes or names. They barely have identities. So what is left are the pronouns that vaguely denote who they are. So by doing this, I create a distance between me and the characters. For me, they are all just like people I pass by every day on the streets. So what I know from a glimpse of these people is just their outfits and bodily features, which in most cases are extremely gendered according to the sexual norms. At the same time, these characters are all degendered, as you have noticed, because by putting all these characters only into a she or a he or a I position, I made all of them replaceable. That is to say, the she in every story in the second part can almost be replaced by he or I, and vice versa. Thus, I created a paradox. On one hand, these characters are gendered by the binary pronouns. But on the other hand, they are degendered through the exactly same mechanics. 
So you can say these stories are both gender fluid and gender rigid. And uh, the same thing applies to human and non-human relations. These characters are inherently humans, but because most of them are lack of characteristics and even emotions, they seem more like machines. So I want to create such ambivalence since I feel constructing and deconstructing boundaries, be it in ethics, race, gender, species, and every aspect is a challenge that we have to confront again and again endlessly. It is very interesting because I think when I read the first story about Iju and then relating to the last one, Hotel California, although the last one is an AI and we know that it was exhibited through a sort of a human male features, but you almost feel like they, they could be the same <laughs> as well, like reiterating each other basically about these two stories. Yeah, and actually in the last story, Hotel California, you can see that in the very last part of the story, the narration or the perspective of the narrator is transferred from an I to he. Because at that time, I was thinking that what if our life, uh, we think it's a reality that we live in, is just a game or it's just a virtual reality of another person or another entity. That's why the perspective of the last story shifts from the first person narrative to the third person narrative. Because I want to shift the angle from the first person. It's like, oh, I feel the world. I, I see the world from where I stand. And then I shift to the third person narratives, third person perspective, so that the readers will know that, oh, what I think as the real is just a virtual reality or just a game from the he perspective. And then by doing this, by putting the Hotel California in the last part, by transferring I from he, it's just like going back to the first Iju, you said, starting from the he perspective. So by doing this, I sort of created a feedback loop in all these stories. That was really nice reading like in that kind of structure as well in the layer. If you don't mind, the next question that we talk about on other writers and literary works that influence you, because I'm very fascinated with uh, your writing, and then I wanted to see like who influences you. You have contributed uh, to this uh, year's Spotlight Festival in April with the Roundtable, and I remember that you gave a brilliant talk about other contemporary sci-fi writers like Gao Yifeng and Yi Yan in Taiwan. And we also know that you're currently supervised by Mr. Ji Dawei, the author of Membrane. So would you say that your work has been much influenced by these authors, or do you work to, with a deliberate attempt to move away, to try to avoid having similar writing style like this, or any other writers that you have in mind, uh, whether it's from Taiwan or from other parts of the world that uh, you think influences your creativity? First of all, I'd like to thank you again for organizing the wonderful roundtable. Yeah, it was a fruitful discussion on sci-fi and climate change, and with you and all the discussion from various disciplines and countries. Yeah, I enjoyed it so much. Our pleasure. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as for the influence, I must confess that when I wrote the stories of human glitches, I hadn't read any of the sci-fi masterpieces you mentioned. <laughs> so it's an internal drive that you have. <laughs> I should explain it further. I turned my focus to sci-fi very lately, in two to three years, I mean in research. And uh, most of the stories in the collection are written during 2013 to 2018, so it's more like 10 to 80 years ago. And when I wrote these stories, I was more immersed in literary and philosophical theories than in the literary works themselves. 
So what really inspired me the most are primarily academic writings. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Such as the theories, queer studies, and posthuman studies, and other social and cultural critique. And yeah, I think it sounds very counterintuitive. No, but it, it can tell for actually from your work, like、uh, the cyborg, for example, from Donald Haraway, or when you mentioned Judy Butler,、uh, the performativity of the sexual gender role. And I was like, yeah, that is true because I read all these academic authors, but. Reading is through the lens of what you call literary output. It's very different sort of feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But considering the time, like twenty thirteen to twenty eighteen, I was completely new to the sphere of、uh, literary studies. Before I began to study literature, I studied music for my bachelor degree. So during the years, I was writing the stories. I was completely freshman who had just. Transferred her profession from music to literature. So, what required me the fullest effort was always the theories assigned in the graduate courses. That reading experiences reflect in my writings. So, just as you have noticed that, so all the writings affect me both academically and creatively. So it was not until recent two to three years that I realized that the number of my literary readings was quite insufficient, and that I turned sci-fi as my focal point for my dissertation. So I began to read as much as I can the sci-fi works from Taiwan, including, of course, the ones by the writers you mentioned, Gao Yifeng, Yi Ge Yan, and writer Ji Da Wei. I have to say, retrospectively, I felt I was blessed by my ignorance, <laughs> because had I know all these beautifully written sci-fi novels before I created my own, I wouldn't have. You might have shied away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have dared to write my own ideas. <laughs> really? Yeah, I w- I would have been just so overwhelmed by their creativities. I think there is definitely like a very good sort of intellectual capacity in yourself, actually. Because when I first read your book, it wasn't your book from the beginning to the end. I was reading, peeling off the particular chapters online, and I was like, after I read it, I was like, this has some shadow of Jita Wei, but like version two thousand twenty-two. Very different taste, but very poetic as well. Yeah, yeah. As for the poetic side, I think I was influenced by a lot of Taiwanese female writers, such as、uh, Huang Liqun, Yan Shuxia, or Ke Yufen, because I was fascinated by their delicate craft of words and phrases, and their deployment of literary tropes and images, which affected me deeply in refining my story to the very detail of every word, every phrase, and every sentence. And as to the influence, I must mention the influence from my advisor Da Wei because it was so substantial. He was the advisor of my master thesis. He taught me how to write simple yet effective sentences to and build my argument. Hence, my paper based on all these sentences. What he taught me is mainly about academic writing. It affected my creative writing, nevertheless. So some readers and reviews have pointed out that my writing is very concise and thoroughly structured. I must attribute all this to the rigorous writing instructions that Dawei has given me. 
I must admit, I'm very jealous <laughs> of this because、uh, as a literary student,、uh, since age like eighteen or nineteen, I always like look into my own creativity writing at early stage, and then find myself just scribbling around and not having good sentences at all. <laughs> It takes so much time to just look at it word by word, and that's why I I wrote not so many stories and works. Well, the final question that I actually have for Xinhui is an exciting one because I wanted to ask you about your future writing project. And previously, we exchanged in emails, and you mentioned that basically you are now preparing your next book, and it is more related to the idea of Anthropocene and climate change. This is a topic that I myself work on for literature for a while. And can you let our audience know a bit more about what you have been working on so far? Is it a short stories like Human Glitches, or is it a long novel? Yeah. After I finish my visit to UCLA here, I will go back to Taiwan to publish my second book, which is a full-length novel. It can be seen as an elaboration of the short story, a piece or 一句 that we have discussed earlier. Or I should say it reversely. When I was writing 一句 I sensed that I needed to make it larger to contain all those topics you just noticed. So the novel I'm going to publish sets a story in the future when humans are prohibited by AI government from touching each other. The reason is that the AI government runs a scientific study that reveals that touch is detrimental to human well-being in transmitting viruses and in spreading emotions. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> so humans can no longer get physically close to each other, not to mention establish relationships. So the remedies for lack of companionship turn to humanoids or androids. So every human is assigned a humanoid to build a kind of monogamous relationship with, which, according to AI government, is the best solution since androids won't be infected by either viruses or emotions, and it also brings. True equality, social equality in that yeah, sense. Yeah, social equality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because everyone has the same partner manufactured by the AI government. So it is, of course, a dystopian novel, as you can sense. Although it doesn't deal with climate change directly, it still has a little bit to do with the Anthropocene in terms of the close relationship between humans and non-humans. And how technology development devolves back on humans, as we have seen that Anthropocene is the direct results of technology development since industrial revolution that affects our daily life nowadays. And、uh, more importantly, is that the novel still revolves around my main concern, that is the boundary again, <laughs> because touch is the boundary, and boundary between individuals is established by the very gesture of touch. Or haptics in a more general sense. So you know your body's boundary by perceiving your surroundings and touching someone or something. So touch is also a nonverbal social language. By different extent of touch, you are constructing different kinds of boundary between you and the one you touch. And eventually, all these boundaries indicate your relationship with the one you touched. So if touch is the essence of boundary. Between humans or between you and the environment, and I was speculating that what would happen if touch was eliminated from human society? How do we think about humanity in that situation? When you can no longer feel the warmth of another person, would you consider yourself still a human or a machine? 
And um, also because we already live in the sci-fi reality that we just discussed, where human and machines come to unprecedented intimacy. My novel is about how we develop our relationships and even ethics with these artificial species in the future. I see. That's very interesting because um, I really think when I was reading yeah. June, that first chapter, it was already like embodied, like encapsulates such a big universe that you were describing. And then there are so many different lines that you can develop in general. And you said that it's not that much related to climate change. But I think if I remember correctly, you touch upon the theme that the guy who was as a protagonist and say to the kindergarten teacher saying that there's also a principle of not having human descendants but using (laughs) (laughs) toys because human pollutes anyway and human only lead us to disastrous uh, sort of climate and environment dystopian world yeah i was implying like human is the it's a source it's the blame yeah it's a source yeah 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 Is it possible to ask you to promote a little bit of your book? Uh, can we know the provisional title or is it confidential? The title hasn't hasn't been, because I, I'm still discussing with my editor, so we still haven't had a title. I see. I think it would be maybe 人机配种计划. It's like mating human machine, <laughs> translating into English directly. That would be an exciting project. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Thank you so much, Xinghui, for today's contributions. I think we cover most of the questions that we have discussed over here relating to your previous book publications and also the next future exciting one. And I really do wish you all have a good stay in LA and profit from your research trip. Is this research trip also related to your novel writing as well? No, it's more about my research. PhD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, then you must have like more than 24 hours than us. Dehumanized time, <laughs> more than us, to be able to complete two books. <laughs> yeah, I have not a lot of fun, but yeah, a lot of fun with my Alexa. <laughs> thank you so much for being here with us and recording this podcast with us. I wish you all the best. And then thank you again for all our listeners to join us uh, listening to Taiwan on Air podcast. Thank you, Dihan. Thank you. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.